Hello, and welcome back to the Economics Review. Our guest today is an award-winning professor and managing editor of the Journal of Economic Perspectives, a quarterly academic journal produced at McAllister College and published by the American Economic Association. He holds a master's degree in economics from Stanford University and is the author of the legendary Principles of Economics textbook. It is truly my pleasure to welcome to the show, Timothy Taylor. Thank you so much for joining us, Timothy. Sure, I'm glad to. Firstly, I want to start off by asking you to introduce yourself and tell us a bit about your background and work for the Journal of Economic Perspectives. Sure. Um, well, maybe the most important thing I can say about the journal is that about 10 years ago, the American Economic Association made it freely available online. So if you Google Journal of Economic Perspectives, it will take you to the web page and you can see all the recent articles and all the articles back to the very first issue, which was back in 1987. I was actually hired back at that time. I've been the managing editor of the journal ever since 1987, since that first issue. Uh, the thing that makes the journal distinctive is that most academic journals are about the most cutting edge recent research. And so they're written in the mathematical and statistical style of that research with uh, the models and the statistics and the tables and so for people for, who only have a little bit of background in economics, they're hard going because um, you don't have the tools ready to, to read them. And the idea of the journal that I run was to have one journal, which was written primarily in words. <laughs> uh, so if you go through our pages, there are a few figures and tables, but there are not pages of math or pages of statistical tables. And a lot of my job these uh, many years has been that we invite people to write. We say to them, we don't want your most recent research paper, but in uh, the area of economics where you specialize, what are the things that are the important subjects now? What are the things we know now that we didn't know five or 10 years ago? What should we be working on? And we ask them to write an article that's much more like an essay in that general tone. Um, and because these people are so used to writing research papers, they can barely stand to do this. And so they often send us first drafts, which are full of equations and um statistical tables, and I carefully um, delete all those and try and work with the author to write something that would be more in our style. Perfect. So in the past, you yourself have written extensively on a range of complex contemporary economic issues with a specific focus on accessibility. So keeping with that tone today, I wanted to get your take on some of the economic issues facing us that have been hotly debated in the news. So. Sure. One such issue that has been of particular importance recently is inflation. So with unprecedented levels of government spending during the pandemic and a supply chain crisis, we also saw record-breaking inflation at similar, at similar levels to the stagflation during the Carter years. The price of everything from used cars to groceries has ballooned, whilst the Federal Reserve and Congress appear to keep pursuing expansionary fiscal and monetary policy. I wanted to get your take on the causes of the inflation that we're seeing and whether you believe Americans have any reason to be worried and what you would recommend to Congress and the Federal Reserve to bring inflation back under control. Sure. Um, well, I'll just say as a starting point that inflation has for economists been a major puzzle for the last 25 or 30 years. Uh, the general pattern of inflation, as you might have learned back in your intro econ days, if you ever took one of those classes, was that um, when there's a lot of extra buying power in the economy, that extra buying power tends to push up prices. And then something comes along like a recession, and there'll be less buying power in the economy, and that tends to bring inflation back down. 
And so if you look at sort of World War II economic history, you can kind of identify these surges where there's a lot of buying power or not so much buying power. And um, those are driven sometimes by government spending or by choices of the Federal Reserve or, or just different things happening in the economy. Well, it's been weird for economists, though, is that if you go back to about the early 90s up until just before the present day, inflation barely moved. And that was a shock. You would have thought, for example, that, say, during the early 2000s, when housing prices are heating up and there's lots of buying power, that you would have seen some sort of a surge of inflation. Didn't happen. You would have thought that during the Great Recession in 2008 to 2010, you would have seen a huge drop in inflation. Didn't happen. Um, so over and over, there were this sort of general sense that inflation seemed stuck in place. And that wasn't a terrible thing. Inflation was fairly low. But various people who would predict from time to time, well, inflation might be about to take off, might be about to take off. They were wrong and wrong and wrong and wrong and wrong and wrong. So that gets us up to the present day. And um, in the present day, the people who said inflation was going to take off, say, last March or February, they got the answer of, oh, yeah, you guys have been predicting that for 25 years now. Hasn't happened. It's not a worry anymore. And so part of what's feeding into the concerns about inflation is the sense that inflation really had been stuck at a low level for quite a while. And there's a worry that it's coming unstuck. So the question of why it's coming unstuck, what you might want to do about it, isn't, isn't a difficult question. Um, for me, the answer really is that it came unstuck for a couple of, of interrelated reasons, all related to the pandemic, as, as you might expect. Um, one weird thing that happened in the pandemic that was unexpected is that most of the times when there's a recession in the U.S. economy, what happens is the quantity of services people buy stays about the same, but the quantity of goods people buy drops sharply and then bounces back. And often that's because in a recession, people are putting off buying a new house, a new dishwasher, a new car, stuff like that. And then, you know, as the economy recovers, they, they start buying those things again. But in the pandemic recession, the service industries were all shut down. And so what happens is services drop dramatically, which is that doesn't happen in recessions. That's very unusual. And then all the buying power people had from government programs bolstering up their income went into the goods sector. So goods actually go up in the recession, which doesn't happen. So you think about that. All these goods are going up unexpectedly at a time when the pandemic is shutting all kinds of stuff down, making transportation much harder. And, and what you get is bottlenecks forming in the economy. Lots of different little bottlenecks. The sort of visual image there is all the container ships sitting out at sea off Long Beach and Los Angeles Harbor. But there are a million other little bottlenecks, hard things in delivering to stores, in trucking, in rails, all kinds of, of difficulties in getting supplies. And those feed on each other. A bottleneck in one place can create bottlenecks in other places. So you had this extra buying power coming into the economy um, at a time when it was really hard to deliver the goods that people wanted. And goods have to arrive physically. They're not like services that you can just uh, just download over the internet or, or, or do in person. So um, the result was more buying pressure in a situation where goods were having a hard time expanding. And I think that's what drove the current inflation. The big de debate at the moment is um, sometimes people say, are you on team transitory or team permanent? Transitory meaning 
that as these bottlenecks work themselves out over the next year or so, the inflationary pressures will ease back and then inflation will go back down again kind of naturally. And so this is a sort of a temporary phenomenon, a transitory phenomenon. Team Permanent says, well, maybe it starts off transitory, but if you keep adding to those inflationary pressures and if companies get used to raising prices and workers get used to getting raises because they need that raise because inflation is raising the prices, you can get into a situation where inflation becomes unhinged. Um, instead of being stuck like it was for the last 25 years or so, it starts to take off. And I don't have a clear answer to which of those it is right now. I guess the way I lean is that so far, I'm a team transitory guy. I think what's happened so far, if you look in the details of the inflation, it really is about areas where the bottlenecks have been high. But there's legitimate fear that if one keeps pushing on a transitory situation, it can become worse. And so my general advice would be, um, this isn't a time to make things worse. <laughs> this isn't a time for a huge surge of, of new spending. It isn't a time for the Federal Reserve to um, show that it's not worried about inflation. It's a time for to let the situation work itself out a little bit, probably over the next year or so. Well, that's that's a very thorough response. Um, so thank you for that. I think it really answers all of the questions that our audience had regarding inflation. Um, so another issue that I wanted to discuss with you today is the national debt. So many of those in favor of raising the debt ceiling and calling for more borrowed spending are proponents of modern monetary theory, which posits that monetarily independent countries like the United States are not constrained by the amount of money that they bring in through taxes or other revenues in determining their budgets and don't have to worry about having a balanced budget. So in stark contrast, many economists have issued doomsday predictions if we don't curtail our spending, calling for an immediate reduction in social programs. So I'm sure our viewers would love to get your take on the debate surrounding the national debt and whether or not we have anything to worry about, especially with Congress set to renew the debt ceiling in, in a couple of weeks. Sure. Um, well, you, you, what you described are two pretty extreme positions. I would say that the hard thing for the modern monetary theory people, as you described, is that. In large part, they were riding the wave of it's just fine to spend more because we don't have to worry about inflation taking off. And now that inflation has taken off, um, those folks are really um, set back a little bit in their arguments because it's clear that borrowing lots more money can't drive up inflation. We're watching it drive up inflation. And so um, that group, which was always kind of a small splinter group, Honestly, um, I think you're not hearing a lot from them right now because um, it's clear there are constraints and those constraints are showing up in inflation, as I mentioned a, a minute ago. Um, on the other side, just because you don't you don't think there are no constraints, that doesn't mean that necessarily um, the you know, the edge of the knife is right over our heads this very second. Um, one of the things that we can it's true that our debt is very high. Uh, if you look at debt as a percentage of um, the size of the economy, debt as a percentage of GDP, um, one of the patterns you see is that the highest point in U.S. history um, for that debt as a share of GDP was right was right during World War One, or I'm sorry, World War II. We basically fought World War II on borrowed money, and at the end of World War II, in about 1946, I think it was the ratio of debt to GDP in the U.S. was like 
the total debt was 107% of the GDP. Well, that's roughly where we are now. We're just a little bit below that level. So we're just about to blow through the, uh, the previous all-time high, and we probably will in the next few years. So how much do we worry about that? Well, I, I worry about it some, but I worry about it more as a long-term thing than an immediate thing, uh, or maybe a middle-term thing. What really drives the debt over time is uh, is gains, is growth in, in, in programs like Social Security and Medicare, programs for the elderly and programs that spend money for health care. And those are the two big areas, the federal budget, that's been growing very quickly for a long time now. And those are the ones that keep driving the debt higher and higher and higher over the next decade or two. And so when I think about debt concerns, what I think about is it would be a good time to have some serious discussion about where those programs are headed and what, what we're going to do about them. Uh, and in a way, I, I sort of joke sometimes, this is the the least unexpected crisis in U.S. You know, budgetary history. It was obvious um, to everyone <laughs> for decades now. I mean, I was writing about this in the 1980s, that as the baby boomer generation got old, and started turning age 65 in around 2010, over the next couple of decades, there'd be a lot of people much older and programs like Social Security and Medicare, and then in general, healthcare spending, including Medicaid, were gonna blow up in size, and they are. <laughs> and um, and we've known that was gonna happen for a long time, and, and basically neither party has been willing to do a blessed thing about it. And um, so we're now getting to the point where there's going to need to be some choices made there. Uh, you can't borrow the money forever. You can't uh, blow through this and keep going forever. <laughs> right now, we're okay because interest rates are so low that all this money we've borrowed, the interest payments we're making on it aren't too high. But as the debt gets bigger and maybe as interest rates go up again to some extent, we really are going to have to face it. And and I'm I'm you know the sort of person who would like to see a a longer term fix, really thinking about the long term sustainability of these programs that that so many people depend on. So I'm glad you brought up um, Social Security there, because that's one of the issues that we, we discuss a lot on the show. And I think you really touched on some of the key issues with Social Security. So um, you, you talked about how there, there were predictions quite early on that um, we, we would see some sort of crisis with Social Security as we had more and more people start to retire and, and uh, the, the population shifted a bit in terms of um, the distribution of age. So when Social Security was implemented um, under FDR, um, the, there were a lot more young people, a lot more workers for every retiree, and people didn't live nearly as long. Um, people are living almost a, a decade or so longer um, the people that hit 65 are living, I think, something close to a decade longer than they used to back then. So we I have a, that's right. So so we have a lot less people for every retiree. So that ratio has gone down and we have people living so much longer. Um, there, there's obviously going to be issues with Social Security there. So um, the, there have been predictions made that it's heading towards insolvency the next 10 or 15 years. Um, do, do you see that coming to fruition or is there well, anything we should be it, doing? It clearly that? is headed for insolvency. I mean, that's just a, that's just a fact about the, the numbers that, um, that there for many years, what we were doing from the eighties, nineties, early two thousands was we were building up what was called the trust fund. And that is to say the people paying into social security all those years 
we're paying more than the beneficiaries received in any given year. And so the trust fund, the extra amount was building up higher and higher and higher. And about, I think it's about five years ago now, maybe it's more like eight years ago, I lose track, but um, the trust fund peaked out. And since then, we've been drawing down the trust fund. And in other words, um, people who currently get benefits, part of those benefits come from the people paying taxes in any given year. But part of it is drawing down this trust fund that had been built up. And so you can go to the, again, you can look up the annual report of the actuaries of the Social Security Administration online. They lay all this out with nice little tables and figures. And you can see the trust fund is just going to sort of fade out. And um, I think now it's around about 2034, 2035. The trust fund will be gone. And as a result, um, the money coming in will pay for about two-thirds of the benefits that have been promised uh, to people. So um, so then you got a problem. And, and if you wait till 2035 to fix it, it's a big problem. I mean, there's a lot of money involved there. Um, but there's also a number of steps one could take and could have taken, you know, at any point in the last decade or two to address that problem. You know, for example, you can let the retirement age start getting a little higher over time. One of my um, one of my uh, economist friends likes to say something like, you just can't have an economy where people work, say, 35 years from age 25 to 60 and then retire for 35 years. You know, you, you can't, <laughs> there isn't, a, you don't make enough during your lifetime to pay for retirement benefits for that long a time. You need to have people work a little longer. You probably need to think about um, for those with other sources of income, having them receive slightly lower benefits. You can think about the formulas that are used to calculate how much benefits people receive. Um, um, one of the proposals has been that you, right now the benefits are based on your highest 35 years of income. You can have your benefits based on your highest 40 years of income or something like that. Give people reason to work a few more years. Um, so there's just a, a bunch of things one could do, but it's not hard to look at a list of possibilities with Social Security and um and you know, figure it out. I mean, I've I've done this in various lectures where I show people the list of options, and the general feeling in the room is, you know, if you took, you know, if you took any hundred people and you said we need to fix this problem and we don't get to go out for lunch until we fix the problem, they could fix it in about a morning. I mean, people would come to some agreement. It's really a a, a terrible failure, I think, of our political system that we don't seem able to talk about this issue. Yeah, it really has become one of those issues that nobody in Washington on either side of the aisle for years is willing to get anywhere near. It's a death sentence. So um, I think um, another topic that's been a hot button issue this week that I also wanted to discuss with you are the proposed taxes on unrealized gains. So Elon Musk took to Twitter to ask his followers who overwhelmingly affirmed the idea that his stock holdings in Tesla were a form of tax avoidance, um, leading him to sell 10% of his share in the company. There've been, there's been much controversy surrounding the constitutionality and justifiability of taxing unrealized profits, especially considering the bill could have a significant impact on the financial planning of many Ameri um, middle-class Americans, um, especially homeowners. So I'm sure our listeners would love to get your take on the debate surrounding taxes on unrealized gains. Sure. Um, well, I guess I would say a couple things about it. One is that in practical terms, what we're talking about here is, is pretty messy. And, and to give you a sense of the messiness, 
you know, we're we're sort of used to this notion of taxes going or of you know capital gains being up because the stock market's been rising the last few years. The stock market doesn't go up every year, right? There is a big drop off during the Great Recession in 2009. There's another big drop off back in um, 2001, and so um, one of the questions is: if you get taxed on gains, do you get a rebate for your losses? I mean, or can at least the losses offset future gains? Well, now we're getting into some more complicated stuff than just talking about Elon Musk. Um, Many people um, would be bitter to say no more if the money they've got invested in their 401k account or their retirement account got invested in the stock market, if they owed taxes on that money each year as as the money gained in value. Um, There are a lot of people who start off, say, running a company and when the company is small, they personally or their little group owns pretty much all the stock in the company, or maybe they own 55 or 60 percent. So if they have to pay gains on on this as the stock price goes up, that can be a young company that doesn't yet really have any outside income. It doesn't necessarily have any profits. It's just that the prospects for the company look better and better. So when people were starting companies, you would be forcing them to sell shares of the company before it became profitable in order to cover the taxes because they don't have any other source of income that would that would cover those gains. Um, and so you start getting into the details of how exactly would this work? And it's, um, it's difficult. It's genuinely difficult. Um, to me, a lot of the talk about taxing unrealized capital gains, it's a way of saying that we think there should be a tax, not necessarily every year as these gains go up and down, but that certain people like Elon Musk or like Warren Buffett or like Bill Gates um, should have to um, should have to pay some tax on the accumulated wealth that they have, and they should have to pay that that wealth tax. And so that's there are proposals for a, a wealth tax that have been kicking around as well. And in a way. Um, higher capital gains are a, a form of a wealth tax. Oh, I should mention, I mean, when I say capital gains, we're not just talking about stock, right? We'd be talking about things like the value of your house going up. So if the value of your house goes up 10%, do you owe taxes on that as income? That, you know, it's an unrealized capital gain. And so again, as people get into the details, they become a little more like, I don't mean me and I don't mean everyone else. I sort of mean the really, really rich people. (laughs) And that's why I say really what people are talking about is kind of as a form of a a wealth tax instead. And wealth taxes are a whole other subject in a way, and they've been talked about a lot. I guess I would just say in passing that um, as of maybe 30 years ago, um, a number of European countries, I think about a dozen of them, had wealth taxes where they taxed the wealth of rich people, not the income, but the wealth that they had accumulated. And over time, all those countries, uh, uh, except I believe for Switzerland and maybe one other, have dropped those wealth taxes because um, it turned out that in practice, once you started saying what's a capital gain and what's wealth, it got enormously complicated. And there were so many ways for people to duck and dodge around the taxes that um that it stopped being functional. They were doing a huge amount of effort to collect an amount of tax, which was really quite a small amount. So for me, at the end of the day, 
I believe in having those with high incomes pay more taxes. And I think one could do various things to avoid situations where uh, where capital gains never get paid. And the most obvious one is um, when you get to the end of your life, when Elon Musk and Bill Gates and Warren Buffett all get old and they pass on the stock in their company to the next generation, the current rule is that that stock doesn't get taxed when it passed along. The gains in that stock are just grandfathered in and passed along to the next generation. There's no there's no tax on 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 those gains when they're passed along at time of death, and um, and that's to me where you really get into this world of so you know people can pass along their wealth in an untaxed way by doing that, and and I would like to see some changes in that particular set of of how we tax what's passed along to other people at time of death. Yeah, that European example really is one um, that's that's very important to look at when considering a wealth tax. I think France spent more money trying to enforce a wealth tax than they actually collected for, from the wealth tax. They lost um, hundreds of their millionaires and billionaires. Um, but overall, there was a massive drop in tax revenue instead of a gain like they, they had expected. Um, and it gets again, it just gets very complicated as to what is your wealth. I mean, and and remember, if you tax wealth by a lot or capital gains by a lot, you start giving people a big incentive to think about how do I hold my finances or organize my finances in a way which is different. Um, an example would be, um, say that, um, you know, you want to tax somebody's wealth. Um, and so what they do is they take their wealth and they buy enormous amounts of life insurance policies. So they don't have this wealth anymore. They've bought life insurance policies. And when they die, those life insurance policies all pay off for their heirs. So what what happened to your wealth tax there exactly? You know, who's who's paying it and how and and why are we making people go through these complicated things? Um, and if it's, you know, that's a fairly simple example. There's lots of more complicated examples one can bring up. So I I guess again the 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 bottom line for me is Countries that tried it didn't like it. And that's something that in the U.S. we should pay some attention to if we're thinking about it. Okay. well, the last thing I wanted to talk to you about today was the new trillion dollar infrastructure bill passed by Congress just a few weeks ago. So while some argue that the bill will create long term economic growth and countless jobs, others insist that amidst a 30 trillion dollar national debt and unprecedented inflation, a trillion dollar bill is reckless. I just wanted to get your take on the whole debate to finish off. Sure. Um, well, I guess, so big picture here, there's a question about U.S. infrastructure and and how many, many cities are running on sewage systems and clean water systems and all the rest, which were built 100 years ago in, in many cases, um, or decades ago at least. Um, a lot of uh, roads and bridges are torn up. Um, here in Minneapolis, just to give an example, we had a, a big bridge, a major bridge over um, that goes right through the city of Minneapolis, just fell. It collapsed, you know, um, a few years back and, you know, people were killed. Um, here in Minneapolis, there's a giant pipe, um, a, a sewage pipe that runs under one of the main streets in downtown Minneapolis. And it was, you know, decades old and it broke. <laughs> um, and so, it's easy to point to infrastructure problems and 
And I do think the world, you know, the, the U.S. economy in general benefits from having good and well put together infrastructure. And so in that sense, um, it's hard to be against infrastructure. It's kind of like being against um, against you know, apple pie or something like that. But but that said, um, let me raise some doubts about the bill anyway. Um, it's one thing to say um here are these specific examples of big infrastructure problems, and it's not hard to come up with a big list of them. It's another thing to say, um, does this enormous bill really fix those problems? Or is it sort of going to be um, a lot of money that kind of goes out there and and in five years, we'll be saying, well, it doesn't look that different than it did before. It's perhaps worth remembering that back in 2008, we had an enormous infrastructure bill that passed as part of the um, recession relief efforts then. Um, so we had an infrastructure bill. Um, and now 10 years later, we're saying, oh, everything is terrible. We need another one. That would suggest that some stuff went wrong with the previous infrastructure bill, which we should try and understand. And so, for example, there's some research on the subject, which suggests that when states got a whole bunch of new infrastructure money back in 2008, what the states did was they cut back on their own infrastructure spending. They just substituted in the federal money for what they would have spent anyway, and they spent their own money on something else. And so five years later, there didn't seem to be a big increase in overall infrastructure spending because the money just got substituted around. Um, economists also like to point out that infrastructure isn't all about just how much you build. It's also about how you charge for it. And, um, and sometimes just building the extra road or the extra lane or whatever is not the most efficient way to deal with the problem compared to having uh, bigger tolls or investing in some alternative, uh, like some sort of mass transit alternative for people to get, get around those problems. And so I guess what I'm worried about is that, that bill, as it was debated, um, it was all debated in this sort of up-in-the-air, high-flown area of, is more infrastructure good or bad? And it didn't seem to be debated in terms of uh, how do we address the problems that came up not that long ago in 2008 and nine, and how are we actually going to target what really needs to be built and what would really be helpful, as opposed to just throwing the money out there and hoping some of it sticks for a good purpose. Well, those are all the questions that I have for you today, Timothy. Thank you so much for joining us on the show. Sure. It's a pleasure. Uh, thanks for taking the time to talk with me. Yeah. And I, I think that the perspective that you really added to the show, um, it, it will help clarify a lot of the things that our viewers have been seeing on the news and, and on social media and you know, just wondering what's, what's right, because there's so many different opinions out there and, and you provide an excellent an, an excellent balanced perspective, you know, giving nuanced consideration to both sides. And you're not sure. Well, the one other thing I would add, if you've got a moment, is just that I do write a, a blog about economics topics that um, it's mostly about articles that I'm reading, not newspaper articles or magazine articles, but about research in economics. Things like reports from the International Monetary Fund or the Congressional Budget Office or sometimes economics research papers. And so it's really just kind of passing along things that I've found interesting with sometimes a few comments of my own. So the blog is called The Conversable Economist. And again, you can just sort of look up Conversable Economist online and it'll take you to the blog. And if you want to kill 20 minutes sometime uh, and learn a little bit about 
economics and some economic research, it's a good place to start. Perfect. And I'll definitely include that in the description as well. So thank you everyone for listening to the economics review. And as always, we'll be back soon with the latest.